Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 350. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Guess what? Helena. Yes, you know what I'm on about. It's Helena. Amy H. Sturgis. There you go. Met her in person. How fab was that, man? Unreal. What a fab time we had down at Worldcon. At the end of this show, I'll talk a little bit about it, because I don't know if anyone wants to hear us waffle on about it, but I certainly will at the end of the show. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We have a fantastic story. Predvishniki by Craig Krajava. And it's narrated by the one, the only, Mr. Nick Cam. Oh, that's what big regret there. Nick didn't get his cell down. He's too busy. So we're going to have to go to Nick. That's the only the only other way I can work this out. Starship Sofa is going to have to go to Nick. There you go. Because he's, you know, he's a sudden shandy drinking <laughs> Yorkshire lad, I think. Oh, oh, he don't, don't say Yorkshire, man. But anyway, well, Nick, what a fantastic reading this is. I gave you a little heads up about Greg. Greg studied theology at the University of Big Sandy, Texas, before entering career in information technology. He has lived in Texas, Colorado, and North Carolina, but currently resides in Omaha, Nebraska. His work can be found in Clark's World, Beneath the Skies, In the Zone, and Grey Sporting Journal. Like I say, there's no introduction needed for Mr. Nick Cam. <laughs> What was really nice, mind is, was like you say, I went down to the kind of the the city, and when I came back up, you know, I was kind of itching just to get on along the coast and walk the dogs, and it was a gorgeous night. Do you know what I mean? Walking the dogs there, but I was listening to this story, and Nick's just got this, just takes you away from where you are. You know what I mean? I was probably one of the, at that time one of the most beautiful places in England. Do you know what I mean? It was just stunning. The waves were crashing. The sit, the sun was dancing off the waves and everything. Gorgeous, yet I was in a totally different place, you know what I mean? Gift, Nick, it's a real gift. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Fred Vetschniki, by Greg Kuzjava. Ben pressed his forehead and palms against the cold glass of the picture window. Twenty-three floors below, ice floes clogged the Moskva, bumping for position in the sluggish current. On the opposite bank, walkers bundled against the weather followed a towpath along the curve of the river. The path skirted the park and disappeared under the covered span of the Pushkinsky pedestrian bridge. Without turning away, Ben said to his wife, Myra, look at this view. But she had already carried her things into the bedroom. 
Underneath his breath, Ben added, Derevo, derevia. Ben knew only as much Russian as he'd been able to teach himself in the six weeks since Myra had assented to his accompanying her on this trip. He'd studied diligently, filling a notebook with conversational phrases and simple sentences. He'd conjugated verbs in the shower. He tried a few times to get Myra to work with him, but she didn't have the patience. Ben's admiration moved past the brash-choked Moskva, past the park in its fringe of dreary tenement blocks, past the factory smokestacks on to where Moscow crowded the middle distance with grey buildings and bare trees. Here and there, tower cranes poised over unfinished structures of glass and steel. "'You can see the Kremlin Wall from here,' Ben called over his shoulder. "'I can't find my phone,' Myra said. Crossing the room behind him, she unzipped his carry-on and laptop case. Ben turned and raised his camera. "'Zina,' he mouthed to himself. Through the viewfinder, he watched her de-stuffing his things. "'It's not in there,' he said. "'Maybe you left it on the plane.' "'I didn't leave it on the plane, Ben.' He took her picture. Fotka. At the click, she looked up at him. "'You could help.' Ben turned back to the window and centred the sprawl of Moscow in the camera's small screen. "'You'll find it,' he said, then snapped the picture." Their suite comprised two rooms and a kitchenette, all painted a shade of blue Ben called Dark and Myra called Egyptian. In the sitting room was a paisley sofa, a desk and a small television on a stand. A rug of complex patterns hung from the wall and a doorless arch separated the rooms. Ben said, The view's great. Let's go eat. I need to work, Myra said. You still have to eat. You didn't have to come, Myra reminded him. You knew I'd be busy. Ben couldn't argue that. Her priorities had been made clear to him well in advance, but he hated to eat alone. He fiddled with the hotel key and looked at the door. Go, Myra told him. Get food, bring something back. So Ben rode the elevator to the lobby alone. He zipped up his coat. Palto, Colondno, as he pushed through the revolving door and into the evening. Dobry he said to the people he passed on Pushinsky Prospect. Not far up the street he found a grocery, where he filled a bag with things that wouldn't eat cooked. He carefully pronounced the words on each of the labels. You know I hate sardines, Myra said when he returned to reveal his haul. They're for me. Well, what's for me? He proudly showed her the bread, cheese and packaged meat, the strawberry cakes and the pears. Pitani, he declared. Except for the pears, it was all a disappointment to her. That night, Myra sat in the centre of the bed, tapping out a stream of emails on her laptop. Ben sat on the sofa with his laptop, reviewing the pictures he'd taken so far to document their journey. The chronicle began at Baltimore, Washington International. Myra dragging her suitcase through the parking garage under the orange glow of the tube lights. Myra riding an escalator up into the echoing terminal. Myra at the gate. Boarding the plane, he'd taken one blurred shot past the back of Myra's head and down the aisle, unamused faces to either side. That image, for Ben, encapsulated the torment and boredom of their ten-hour flight. Then suddenly Moscow, and Myra again digging through the pockets of his bag for a lost, then-found phone. Ben stopped at the picture he'd taken out the window, his attention arrested by something he'd not seen before. He leaned forward and tilted the screen for better light. A few swift taps to enlarge and pan, then there, a tower nearly hidden in the sprawl. At its peak, an open rotunda encircled by pillars and capped with a dome. Only the rotunda and a few floors beneath were visible, the rest being blocked by more modern structures. It looked like something that might have been or still be attached to a mosque. Ben squinted into the glow of his screen. Between the pillars he could just make out what seemed to be a tattered black sheeting, either hanging from the ceiling beneath the dome, or draped over something large, possibly both. The details were obscured by distance. Ben carried his laptop to the window and opened the drapes. Comparing the nighttime Moscow skyline with the image on his screen gained him nothing. The space where he thought the tower should be was unlit. 
Myra appeared under the arch. What are you doing? Looking for something. Can you do it without the light? I'm going to bed. Ben shut his laptop and set it on the desk, then followed Myra into the bedroom. No sooner had he stretched out next to her than she kicked at the covers in frustration. This bed is way too small, she said. Claiming only his pillow, Ben quitted the sofa. It was dawn by the time he slept, noon when he finally woke, and then only because Myra slammed the door leaving. She returned shortly after he'd emerged from the shower, while he was still rooting through the kitchenette, looking for something with which to make coffee. She was finishing a conversation on her phone. We'll talk later. Her eyes flicked to Ben, then away. You too, she said, then snapped the phone shut and handed Ben a large lidded cup. Coffee? he asked, removing the lid to sniff. Tea. I can share. And milk, too. She took a pint carton from a paper bag and set it on the counter. Who was that? Are we still having lunch today? Why wouldn't we? You slept a long time. Ben found a cupboard with a few dainty teacups and was very aware of her watching as he poured for both of them. He peeled open the milk carton, sniffed and grimaced. That's not milk. He passed it to her for verification. Sour, she said. Ben took his teacup to the window. The temperature had plummeted overnight and the trees in the park looked ready to shatter. In the full light of day, the unfamiliar tower from his picture seemed less enigmatic than it had the previous night. Though its base was lost in a cluster of surrounding buildings, Ben imagined hefty balustrades and a vaulted entrance. In the open rotunda, the black sheeting had either been taken down or blown away. Did you see this? Ben said. When Myra didn't answer, he looked back to see her still watching him. He gestured out of the window with his cup. Did you? Did I what? Ben flipped open his laptop and keyed it on. While waiting, he nodded out the window again. That tower. There was something up there yesterday. He leaned over the desk and called up the picture with the tower, then slid the laptop around to face her. Myra hadn't moved and didn't look. He identified the tower on the screen. Right there. She sipped her tea. You don't care. Ben realised, turning the laptop back to himself. What exactly am I supposed to care about, Ben? I didn't see that tower yesterday. Until the words had been spoken, he hadn't realised why the tower bothered him. He'd absorbed their view from the window yesterday. He'd seen the domes of the Kremlin, the red wall, the bare trees. Farther out, he'd noted the tower cranes in the factories. He had not seen the tower. What? Is that building? he asked. Myra, who had come to look over his shoulder, pointed at another building. What's that one? Oh, that one. Her nails clicked on the screen. What's that one? Ben looked at her. Why are you mad? It's just a building. I didn't see it yesterday. We just got here, Ben. There's a lot you haven't seen. Okay, Ben said. He closed the cover of his laptop. Forget it. Turning from her and the window, he picked the camera off the desk and dropped into the sofa. Myra went downstairs for more tea and didn't return until twenty minutes later, empty-handed only to say, I got called in. It's Sunday, Ben protested. But she was already pulling on her coat, zipping up. Only after she'd tugged her gloves on did she stop to look at him. I might miss dinner, she said, then closed the door behind her. In the faint cloud of perfume left in her wake, Ben contemplated the camera. After cleaning the lens with the corner of his shirt, he set it aside and went to the kitchenette to see if she'd left any tea. She hadn't. Instead, he found a receipt with a Moscow address written in her hand. He took it and went to stare out the window. The pale tower, so out of place among the steel and glass, seemed to have grown closer or taller. Ben couldn't tell which. Myra did miss dinner. It was after 2 a.m. when Ben, lying under the bed's thin quilt, heard the door open. 
He listened to the domestic sounds of homecoming making their way through the suite, jangling keys, shed coat, refrigerator and faucet. Stretching out next to him, she sighed with heartfelt exhaustion. With her came an unfamiliar smell. Once she had settled, Ben turned his head to look at her. I ate out, he said, louder than intended. Myra jerked and swore. I thought you were sleeping. There's a restaurant around the corner, Ben said. Nobody there spoke English, but they were so nice to me you wouldn't believe it. I had a really big cucumber. They fed me red soup and dumplings. Pelmeni. It was great. They made me drink vodka. Ben breathed deeply. Vodka. Fine, Myra said. But I can't sleep. I've been up all night. He spent most of the day and much of the evening moving back and forth between his laptop and the picture window. He'd filled the camera with shots that to anyone else would have seemed purposeless. Hours had been wasted digging through online photo archives of Moscow from every angle. I couldn't find any pictures of it, he said. Of what, Ben? That tower. There aren't any pictures of it. Maybe it's new, she said without real interest. Let's go out tomorrow, he turned to her again. We could wander around a bit. Have lunch? It'll be fun. I'm working tomorrow, Ben. Myra turned her back to him. And I have to get up early, she said. So... Unmoving, Ben stared at the ceiling. After dinner, I came back and took more pictures. That was when I found another tower. He waited for her reaction. Got none. It's just like the first one, but smaller. It's farther away, so I can't see it very well. There are black curtains or tarps hung up there, too. Whatever they were, they moved erratically. He could see that much. Out and in again, lifting and curling, covering something under the domes. Ben looked at the back of Myra's head, wondering if she'd heard him. But I don't think they're tarps, he said, or sheets. Myra twisted to look at him. Are you sleeping in here? The sofa was too small for sleeping. Ben was only pretending when Myra left the next morning. As soon as the door closed behind her, he dragged his quilt and pillow into the next room, where he collapsed into the unmade bed and slept in her residual warmth. Upon rising, he made and ate a thick sandwich, practising his Russian between huge bites. Butterbrod, he said. Voda. Then he locked the door behind him, rode the elevator down to the lobby and ventured out into Moscow. Lacking the confidence to brave public transportation in a foreign country, Ben walked. He crossed the Moskva on the Pushkinsky footbridge, then delved into a warren of crowded streets through which he hoped he could find his way to the nearer of the two towers. A light snow began to fall. After an hour, he paused at a cafe and tried to remember the word for doughnut. Reflected in the window, he spotted his tower several blocks to the northwest. The pale stones were larger than he'd imagined, and of a rougher cut. The lofty rotunda and pillars were visible but blurred by the snowfall. The angle revealed no hint of what might be hiding under the dome, until he glimpsed a ragged black flap emerge momentarily from between the pillars. As though pulled by the wind, it unfurled, then tautened, lifted and finally retracted. Too late, Ben lifted his camera. Crossing the street, he lost sight of the tower. When he arrived at the place he thought it must be, he found a parking garage instead. He took a wrong turn, backtracking to the café, but in the space between the balconies of a tenement and the columns of a museum, he spotted the tower again, this time in an unexpected direction. The snow was thickening and the streets were becoming clogged with traffic. Crossing between cars, Ben lost sight of the tower yet again. He searched an hour more, except for the occasional glimpse the tower eluded him. When the press of people and traffic became too much... Ben took shelter under the awning of a theatre and began to think about the best route back to the footbridge. He thought to call Myra, but when he peeled off his glove and dealt for his phone, he found instead the receipt he'd pocketed earlier. He tried to work out the pronunciation of the address, but there were characters he couldn't recognise. Stepping to the theatre's ticket booth, 
He slid the receipt through the window and smiled apologetically through the blurry glass. Please, he said, pas luster. The man behind the glass glanced once at the receipt, then pushed it back through the window. He pointed north, then held up four fingers, pointed west and held up two. Spasibo, Ben said gratefully. The cashier grinned back at him and said, Nizzaccio, udacci. Ben couldn't be sure, but he thought that the man's teeth, every one of them, had been filed to a point. Four blocks north, Ben crossed easily to the west side. Traffic on the snowy streets had become strangely thin. Looking up the narrow avenue, he saw the tower in its pillared rotunda through curtains of snow. He was one block away when a Milizian barred his path. Gripping Ben's upper arm, the man placed an open hand against his chest. Ciudad Nelzia, he said, shaking his head. People were passing on either side, some moving toward the tower, some away. Uncertain as to why he'd been singled out, Ben allowed himself to be turned around. The Melissina was firmly leading him back the way he'd come, repeating, Zaprento, Zaprento, in a strangely slurred accent. Looking back, Ben saw enormous shapes billowing from between the pillars. But look, he said, and tried to turn. The Melissina put one hand to Ben's face and shoved. Ben reeled, slipped in the ice and fell hard. He struggled quickly to his feet to face the Melissina. People on either side of the street had stopped to watch. Nelsa, the Melissina said. Gatis von Ostjuta. Ben backed away, trembling, and the Melissina grinned, showing a long row of small, sharp teeth. Ben returned to the apartment well after dark with the department store box under his arm. Myra was drinking bottled water and watching television from the sofa. He glimpsed the wet, flexing walls of an internal cavity, what looked like video captured during laparoscopic surgery before she switched it off and threw an arm over the back of the sofa. Stamping snow off his boots, Ben asked, What were you watching? Nothing. Where have you been? Ben nodded toward the window. Down there. Shrugging out of his coat, he crossed the room and flung the drapes wide, bearing a dark view of the Moskva and the Pushinsky footbridge. He saw the dim, glowing lanterns along the towpath, but mostly what he saw was the reflection of Myra watching him from the sofa. What did you buy? she asked. I found one of those towers, Ben said, but they wouldn't let me near it. He left the window and sat at the other end of the sofa, then pried the box open to show her. Binocle, he said. You bought binoculars? There were a fine pair and it cost him a good deal. He discarded the wrapping and the caps, then went to the window and put them to his face. Unable to see anything through the snow, he shifted his aim to the footbridge, making some adjustments, then nodded his satisfaction. Now what? Myra said. Are you hungry? Ben returned two hours later, full and a little drunk, to a darkened apartment. He'd been remembered at the restaurant on Pushinsky Prospect, and they had fed him well. He looked in the bedroom, but Myra wasn't there. The bathroom door was open and the lights off. The apartment was empty. Standing at the window, he placed a call to her, and a moment later her phone buzzed from the bedroom. He found it on the floor beneath a pair of her jeans. Ben sat on the bed with the phone in his hands, and he watched its little green light blink at him. Okay, he said, and flipped it open. With a few taps, he summoned the call history. Markov, the phone told him, 45 minutes. Markov, 52 minutes. Markov, 30 minutes. Ben shut the phone and stared out the window. The snow had stopped, but there would be more. He left the bedroom and sat on the sofa with Myra's phone on the armrest next to him. After removing his shoes, he lay down and pulled his legs up and the quilt over his shoulders. He slept as well as his imagination allowed. Ben was up before the sun. He sat facing the open window, still dark, and the blank television. He waited for any one of these things to tell him what would happen. In the small screen of the television, Myra's reflection emerged from the bedroom and entered the kitchenette to draw a glass of water. She'd returned very late.
been to see Markov? he asked. Myra lowered the glass without drinking. Only because he didn't think she would speak without prompting, Ben lifted her phone so she could see it. Markov. Forty-five minutes, he said. Markov. Fifty-two minutes. Markov. Thirty minutes. That brought her out, and quickly. She snatched the phone from his hand. This isn't yours, she said, brandishing. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You don't own me. It's just that we agreed. I work with him, Ben, she said. It can't be helped. A hundred and twenty-seven minutes is a lot of work over the phone. Myra's jaw clenched. Did you see him last night? She stalked away. Ben found her anger preferable to other options, so he let her go and turned his attention to the binoculars. He was surprised how hollow he felt, but how little he cared. His own calmness was alien to him. When he next looked up, the window had filled with frigid blue light and Myra had gone back to the bedroom. Ben crossed the space between sofa and window to look out over a city that had, to him, become unrecognisable. Minuscule flurries, too light to fall, flew every way but down. Even without the binoculars he could see the towers and was not surprised to see that two more had appeared one to the east near the cranes and one to the west past the Kremlin. Through the thin snow he saw heavy shapes hunched behind the pillars. Without really wanting to, he looked through the binoculars. Ragged black tarps and billowing sheets. No, even through a blur of snow Ben's misunderstanding became evident. He lowered the binoculars. Myra, he called over his shoulder in a voice too small to carry. He lifted the binoculars and again saw something dreadful shifting beneath the domes. Not something the tarps covered, but something to which they were attached. Myra, he called. She appeared under the arch. Look, he said, offering her the binoculars. Tell me what you see. Ben, there's something alive up there. She shook her head and went away. Ben switched on the television and found a news programme. Aerial views of one tower filled the screen. Unsteady images of black, angular shapes jutting outward, curling back, testing the air. In no language Ben recognised, the anchor commented and laughed. All his teeth were small and sharp. "'Are you seeing this?' Ben asked in disbelief. Getting no answer, he turned to find Maya standing at the sink. Her eyes were nowhere near the television. Are you... do you see this? Do you want to do this now or later? Myra asked. But Ben's attention had already returned to the sharp-toothed anchors and their amusement. What language is that? Ben pulled his attention from the screen, 
silently demanding an answer from Myra. She opened her hand, inviting enlightenment. I don't know, Ben said. He looked back to the television and the incomprehensible banter. The patterns of their speech contained nothing familiar. The image of the tower pulled in closer, and now the shapes were bulging outward on the cusp of emergence. The anchors cheered. Sharp smiles flashed. Pointing at the screen, Ben looked to ensure that Myra had been watching with him and had seen what he'd seen. But she had gone away to the bedroom. Stunned by the situation, by Myra's reaction to it, Ben went back to the window. After a moment, Myra emerged with her suitcase and stood by the door. Ben stared at her. No, he said. I won't be back tonight, she told him. You cannot go out there. Myra buttoned her coat and hefted her suitcase. She seemed to expect final words from him, but excited shouts from the television demanded his attention. The anchors were ecstatic over something happening in the towers, something long anticipated. The aerial shot revealed enormous dark shapes bulging outward. For ten minutes Ben watched the dark shapes bending out and back in again, like something breathing. Then something massive unfurled. Ben fell back with a stifled shout as an unclear body pushed between the pillars of the tower. Ben abandoned the television for the window. He stared aghast as enormous wings unfolded, stirring the air and obscuring itself in a haze of snow. Similar shapes were rising ponderously from the other towers, borne aloft by the beating of monstrous pinions. From the television, exultation. Rising footfalls sounded down the hall outside. Someone was banging on doors, shouting in Russian. Myra was gone. In a panic, Ben jerked the blind shut and kicked the television off. He vaulted over the sofa to reach the door, which he bolted and chained. He slapped off the lights, then stood breathing heavily with his back to the wall. He thought his door would crack when they assaulted it. Evacuatia, the voice said. Evacuatia. The card key slid in his lock and the bolt retracted. Only the chain stopped the door opening. Ben held his breath as the man outside pressed his face to the marrow breach. Slutchai, he called into the apartment. Srokno, Ivakromisia, Ivakromisia. He pushed against the door, banging it against the chain. Bonny mesh. Ben waited until the man gave up and moved down the hall to beat on the next apartment, shouting at those within. He quietly relocked the door. The sirens began shortly after, but not as many as Ben would have thought. At first there were frantic sounds all around him, from the adjoining apartments, from the floors above and below. There were urgent voices in the hall, a shout, a scream. Helicopters passed overhead in irregular intervals. In the midst of the chaos, Ben dragged the quilt off the sofa and into the kitchenette, where he hid beneath it. In time he slept. When he woke it was to darkness and crushing silence. Quilt around his shoulders Ben crawled into the living room and turned on the television, only to find repeating network test patterns. Keeping to the floor, Ben found his coat in the closet and fished out his phone. He sat with his back to the closet door and dialed Myra. Her voice instructed him to leave a message. Myra, he whispered. Myra. Phone to ear, Ben moved in a crouch to the window. Parting the heavy drapes, he looked toward Moscow. There were fires burning where there shouldn't have been fires. There was a great deal of smoke. Snow, fat and ashen, bumped against the window pane. It coloured the trees, the ground and the river a dark grey. There were bodies on the ice. No, Ben amended. Stay where you are. Ben remained at the window. He could see so little beyond the park. Myra, he said into the phone, then waited for a response, as though she were there, listening but silent. Call when you get this, he said, if you can.
The light was failing. It would be dark soon. How did this happen? Ben said into the phone. An ominous shape crossed overhead, and Ben crouched lower beneath the sill. In the wake of its passing, snow whirled and leapt frantically. Ben pressed his cheek against the glass to look upward, but saw only darkness and fleeting shadows. What did we do wrong? he asked. He had more questions, but her phone had stopped listening. Ben's eyes sought out the tower, its lofty peak now vacant. He wondered if Myra might be there, and if not there, where, and whom with. He thought of all the sharp-toothed atrocities that might occupy the spaces between them, and of what they might do to him if he were caught in the open. Then he decided none of that mattered. At the door of the room he dialed Myra again. He unlatched the chain while waiting and opened the door just enough to slip his head out and look up and down the gloom of the corridor. The phone beeped, ready to listen. Myra, he whispered, it's me again. Ben switched off the lights, casting the room into darkness, broken only by the ruddy light of Moscow's fires coming through the window. He stepped into the corridor and softly pulled the door shut behind him. He kept his hand on the latch, more exposed than he could ever remember feeling. Myra, stay where you are, then said into the phone. I'm coming. There you go. Copyright is Greg's. Greg, thank you so much for that. Thank you, really. And Nick, what can I say, sir? Thank you so much. You are a star. A one in... <laughs> they broke the mould when they made you. So, Worldcon is at a finish. Yes. Well, I'll tell you, just a little kind of... Try and give you a little kind of glimpse into it. You know, it was... Um, it's a strange beast for me, Worldcons and these conventions, because it's not really my bag of fish at all. Do you know what I mean? I went to the one in France and had a, had a blast there. And then this one came up and it was kind of, yeah, you know, in a way you think, you've got to go down there. Do you know what I mean? But it's, I'm not kind of, I don't do any speaking nonsense or anything like that. And I don't even really want, <laughs> I don't know why I went. <laughs> I don't even really want to go to the panels. I don't even enjoy them. Not that I don't enjoy them. It's just it's not, again, it's not my thing. You know, you kind of, yeah, I don't want to say you're right. I kind of read his book. I'm reading them all the time, kind of thing. It's but what I love is just kind of sitting at the bar, you know, or going round the kind of dealer's table and just tell you what was fab for me is there was a few things that were fab for me is when you're going round the dealer's tables, meeting the publishers. You know what I mean? They're the kind of ones, like, you know, Galantz. Do you know what I mean? These are kind of my idols almost. You know, the publishers. Interzone was there. You know, there was kind of PS publishing. There was loads of, like, indie publishers, you know, even 12th Planet from Australia came over, you know, and I never actually got to see them, you know, because every time I went to their display, there was no one there. (laughs) But all the books were there. And that's what I kind of got a real pleasure out of that, you know what I mean? It was lovely. And Terry Martin from Murky Depth, you know, the horror magazine, we once had an interview. I was going to try and get Terry back on again because he's got a, a big project underway. Had a chat, chat with Terry and Ian Waits, who's kind of, does a new compress, you know, it was just lovely to kind of, to, to get this, meet these people, you know, who are kind of basically keeping the industry going, you know, as far as I'm concerned. So that was lovely. And I tell you what else I really enjoyed was walking around the art, you know, the, some of the art, man, there was just, you know, they had like a kind of, they made out like this kind of, like a gallery area. And it was just stunning, some of the artwork there, you know what I mean? You had all the big hitters. And it was lovely, to be quite honest, because that's, I think everyone knows, you know, you pick up a book almost 90% due to its cover, you know. And if the art doesn't grab you, the cover doesn't grab you, you ain't going to pick it up, you ain't going to read what probably a classic story is inside. And it was like to say there was some big hitters there and art, and just even people you'd kind of never heard of, you know, what they've getting a stall there, they took the chance and got a stall there. It was lovely, do you know what I mean, to walk around the art. But man, how big was this building we're in? 
it went oh, there's two train stops do you know what I mean that's how big it was and it, it, on the thing it would say you know on your kind of tube the DLR in to Excel it would say you know this stop for the Excel sender so you got off and it put you off at the wrong one and it's in twice I walked it you know what I mean because I wasn't too sure where the other one was where the other stop was what a size man just and they say this is Worldcon we're talking about and it was probably the biggest one with the most participants in there and it was just right at the back right just tucked at the back you know what I mean just like bags of room and even on one day there was another some, some sort of kind of sports race inside the building and you kind of walk past the doors where this race was and it was it was like a like a full concert room do you know what I mean it was just I had these massive rooms offshoots of the actually this long corridor and even where they did the Hugos you know that you announced the Hugos and the retro, retro Hugos huge auditorium absolutely massive so a great venue do you know what I mean like you couldn't pick a better venue and it was because it wasn't crammed and it was just it was nice you know you weren't kind of hustling bustle because that would have been straight that would have been straight on my list okay oh, I'm not into that and like I say, I didn't, <laughs> if you want anything on kind of what the panels were like and what the references were like, I didn't really, you know, I didn't do one. I didn't even go to Amy's. No, it's, ah, I didn't really have a drink, Amy. And it was lovely. Do you know what I mean? It was kind of really nice. And, we, you know, Starship, sort of, we met up with a few people there. That was like, so I just want to kind of say a big, you know, again, especially a big thank you to Amy. We've seen Amy H. Sturgis. We've seen Diane Severson there. Diane Portry Planet. I want to just say a big hello to Luke, to Jeremy, to Catherine, Jeremy's wife, to Lawrence and Lawrence's dad, which I, oh, for, for the life of us, I can't remember Lawrence, what your dad was called. <gasps> and just Lawrence's dad as well, cool dad. He had all the information, you know, and he knew science fiction, man. We were just puppies in his kind of aura. It was just fantastic. And my good friend, Gary Main, came down. And I'll tell the story about Gary, because Gary was coming down on the Saturday. I got there on the kind of Thursday, around about probably five o'clock. And I was leaving on the Saturday dinner time, and Gary was coming down on the Saturday, and it was like, oh, I'm going to, you know, and Gary's been a supporter, sure, listen to the show. I don't know if anyone can remember. Oodles ago, we kind of got some books together at the sand, because Gary was in the RAF, and he was in kind of Afghanistan, and we just sending some books and this was years ago and like say Gary bless him been listening for that long and I got a message on on me on me phone on me phone, what do you call them things on me phone saying Gary be there and like uh, I think he was there before I even got up I think on Saturday so I was about a mile away for a couple of stops on the train shot over there and when me and Gary met up this is for the first time you know we've talked and everything and you know done loads of stuff together online but never kind of met up and you know what I mean it was just lovely because as you know I like a drink <laughs> quite a few now and again you know and got I'm trying to get Amy a little bit tiddly one day there through the afternoon there she was on red wine <laughs> I think she had to put herself to bed there she could two large glasses of red wine and I don't know if she had a speaking engagement then or not but anyway I met Gary and you know we were a few hours together and I think it was about half nine in the morning but something silly like that but the bar was open whatever time it was the bar was open so Gary XREF you know what I mean it's it's part of the training so I officially on that sad day handed over the mantle of you know the beer drinker to Gary and Gary took it up in relish and what was really nice is I got text off Gary you know through the day and here he just somehow managed to like stumble into different parties on the night or through the day and he was drinking with UK astronaut I forget what Catherine somebody said the name was he was at a glance party he was shutting something champagne and I hadn't anything to eat you know what I mean he'd been drinking since nine o'clock or something nine thirty with me I left about half twelve and he just carried on but he got a he got a book signed for us as well by one of my favourite artists, which was lovely. Do you know what I mean? I'm kind of just happy as anything for that. But yes, Worldcon was, you know, I'm just talking about all the drinking. There was loads of venues there. I know Amy's first one was Sherlock Holmes. 
And everyone in our little kind of group went to see it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I had to keep the table at the bar. Do you know what I mean? That was the kind of idea. And they went, you know, plenty ahead of time and it was all sold out. So we could, they couldn't even get in. You know, and these are kind of sofa supporters. But the Sherlock Holmes one was sold, sold out or, you know, seats taken up. And that was the one thing I was kind of hearing. You had to get your name down quick as out if you wanted to be on these panels. But there was everyone there, do you know what I mean? It was kind of, what was nice, it was nice to kind of walk up to a few people and say, oh, you know, Michael Swanick was there. It was nice just to kind of introduce yourself and say, oh, Michael, you know, because, again, these are kind of, you know, the, the kind of the gods of, the, of the, the trade, so to speak. So I think, for me, the highlights was meeting everybody, do you know what I mean? And just having a sitting around, having a chat and having a talk and, you know, Having a few drinks, you know, Diane can sup. By God, she sups them pints quick enough. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, you want another one, Diane? So soon. <laughs> you know, just like meeting people like that and then walking around the art and the dealer's rooms, you know, seeing for me, seeing the kind of these people that are kind of taking a chance and putting stuff out by writers, you know. Like I say, it's, it's just... To do that, you know what I mean? Yeah, there's people that kind of making some money, but there's people there on the line, you know what I mean? Just kind of putting all their savings, putting it on it, putting it, I've heard this firsthand, putting it on credit cards, taking out loans to publish stuff. Do you know what I mean? Boy, brave people. But yes, it was a, a cracking time and I really enjoyed it, do you know what I mean? For someone that kind of doesn't really do these sort of things or doesn't do them that, that often, that well, like you see, <laughs> I don't go and see anybody. I don't speak to the people involved but I had a I had a blast and it was lovely and I don't know if again anyone's seen on the the Facebook we've got a lovely picture we did a selfie of everyone there so that's lovely you can actually see who we look like and what we look like and who I'm talking about there and it was just you know like I said the photograph's a great photograph and it'll be a lovely little memory do you know what I mean so it was really nice now, I also wanted to mention as well, you know, like the Hugo Awards were kind of getting announced on the Sunday. On the Sunday as well, round about, I think it was probably half five, uh, on Facebook, I put a post of like, and this is what I kind of said, I said, the Hugos are only hours away, and I thought I'd stick my tooth penneth in and say who I'd like to win. Notice that it is like to win, not who will win. These predictions are from the heart, not the brain, and there's only, oh, these are the only ones I'm interested in. And I actually picked the John W. Campbell, I picked Best Fan Cast, Fanzine, Semi Prozine, Pro Artist, Editor, Short Story, Novelette, Novella, and Novel. Novel, 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 sounds like. And I got quite a few of them right. For the Best Novel, I picked Ancillary Justice by Anne Leggy, and as you know, that one. Best novel, Novella, Equinod, I think that's how you pronounce it, by Charlie Stross. I got that one. The Lady Astronaut of Mars by Mary Robinette Cole. Best novelette, I picked that. I actually picked, best short story was If Dinosaurs, My Love by Rachel Swartz. You know, that didn't win. I can't, can't remember which one won. Water Falling From, or something, something like that. I, got, I went for best artist was John Pisayo, and that didn't, I think it was Julie Dillon won that. Best semi prosy in Lightspeed magazine, and I picked that one as well, and that one, and I'm just so happy for John Joseph Adams, do you know what I mean? And just, well, the whole crew over there, do you know what I mean? What they're doing for the faith of science fiction is just, do you know what I mean? When you think about all the kind of books John's putting out, he's just kind of re not reinventing science fiction, but the whole, getting a hold of this whole genre and just kind of shaking up and, you know, doing wonders with it. Then I went for best fanzine was Journey Planet. And again, I can't remember who won. And I went for best fan cast. I said T in Jeopardy, and it was SF Signal that won that. But then for the John W. Campbell Award, I picked Sophia Samatra, and she won as well. So that's not a bad kind of little prediction. Do you know what I mean? If I had a few um, bets on that, I would have been quite happy with that. Yes, so that was a few hours before the Hugos got nominated. And it was actually nice to have a look. I think Starship's over, because you can have a look where we are. We were right down this time, right down there. But what I did notice was Gaiman, Neil Gaiman's story, um, Ocean at the End of the... Is it the End of the Road, End of the Lane, or something like that? He'd been nominated, and he pulled himself out, and I guess it was all that kerfuffle with uh, Jonathan Ross that uh, prompted his decision for that. Well, I'm guessing, do you know what I mean? But you never know. But it would have been nice to see that one in. 
But from the start, I've honoured that ancillary justice by Anne Leckie. So that was lovely. So that is Worldcon, like I say, it's over and done with there. Now, I think it's went down like pretty well, you know, from the kind of reaction I'm getting on online and everything like that. It looks to have been a success. Like I say, it was the biggest one subscribed. You know, there's about 10,000 people there. One of you know, a book to go, do you know what I mean? And at one time, like, you couldn't get it. You couldn't get a table for a cup of tea. Not a, not a million yards. So a, a, a grand success, and I really enjoyed it. Until next week, just like to see you. Good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to pod. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Casting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.